Ok, parfait. Well, I don't know if this counts as creativity, but I know when I learn and think, I like to draw connections between topics. So at least in my field, there are a number of cases where I've sort of recognized commonalities between somewhat different problems. By somewhat different problems, I mean the groups that work on them are somewhat isolated. And I think in a couple of cases, I was able to understand that they were actually related topics so I could start to paint maybe more in a class or for a review, a picture tying them together. Of course, once you do that, then you start to realize that there's something more to be done, something more to be understood. Other problems that might connect to these two problems. So in one case, I sort of tied five problems together. I don't know whether people find that creative, but for me, it made it then much easier to understand certain topics because I could see how things were related. They weren't different questions. They were sort of the same question. You just had to sort of tilt your head a little. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Howard Stone is a professor in mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton University. His main topic of research is in fluid dynamics. And fluid motions dominated by viscosity has many applications in science, for example, bacteria and biofilms. And so he applies his expertise in fluid dynamics to address problems at the interface of engineering, chemistry, physics, and biology. To get at the answer, Howard uses seemingly everything at his disposal. Experiments, simulations, modeling, all in order to quantitatively characterize problems to explore new directions. And for his important contributions, he has been elected a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. Notably, Howard has collaborated with so many different people to generate his insights. In one interview, we heard him actually say that it's his habit to leave his office door open in hopes that someone will unexpectedly pop in and tell him something interesting. So, Howard, we're so happy that you popped in today, and we're hoping that you can tell us about your creative process. Thank you, Itai. Thank you, Martin. I'm really looking forward to this chance to talk with you. I've always struggled, I think, with the creative process. I think it took me a long time as a young researcher, you know, transitioning from a beginning graduate student to a postdoctoral faculty member to really recognize the value and indeed importance of creativity in the research realm. And I remember several instances as a young professor where someone wandered into my office and was thinking about fluid mechanics like problems at Harvard in engineering and applied sciences. There was very little activity in fluid mechanics. So when people had questions, they tended to come at that time to my office. And I ended up talking to someone one day about a geophysics problem and another time about a bacterial swimming problem. And those problems differ in length scale by 10 to the 12 or something like that. But they had very similar physical and mechanical principles if you thought about them from the fluid mechanics perspective. And I just found that very interesting. So I sort of made it a habit, keep my door open. Maybe someone interesting will walk in and make my day more exciting. I joke about that, but I think in a way it was real and helped me on these steps in research that I found myself enjoying these kind of interactions that in one sense look very different, but from the viewpoint of fluid mechanics or physics, they have a lot in common. 
And often my own impression is many really exciting things happen at the boundaries of disciplines. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that you struggled with the creative process. I think many listeners would find that counterintuitive that a professor now at Princeton, back then at Harvard, would say something like that. I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for you guys or anyone else. Some of this, I think, is my personality. As a student, I enjoyed learning. I always liked reading. I like quantitative problem solving. I was probably not very good about creating a new problem. And it was only when I was starting to go to lots of seminars as a graduate student, I really liked that. And then I was a postdoc at Cambridge, England, and applied math and theoretical physics, where there were lots of things around fluid mechanics that I'd never seen from atmospheres and oceans to colloidal science. And I just got my mind thinking about lots of different things where the common theme was how you approach problems that are involving fluid flows. But I think I was really a young professor. I was meeting people at conferences. I was starting to travel to visit labs. And I saw these new problems and new approaches to problems that I had never thought about before. And it got me very curious. And I enjoyed meeting the people. I enjoyed hearing their ideas. It started me to realize that there were many, many questions you could ask, not just the questions in the book, not just questions that you were seeing people publish, but the world was full of ways to ask new questions and sometimes questions about old problems that had never been asked. And I had just come from this background that, oh, if it's in a book, well, that's Hmm. the way the world is. But we know that's not true. It just took me a long time to realize that the world is full of puzzles and new discoveries. And if one wants to be part of it, one has to start to think on your own creatively about what it means to understand. And I think I came to it even slower than some of my graduate students. When Mm -hmm. I talk about some of these things, I really find it helpful to think of Pasteur, chance favors the prepared mind. Right. I think there's something about that phrase that has helped me and maybe helps many people. I think you're often able to approach a problem if you have some background that helps you think about it. You don't have to have all the answers, obviously, but whether it's an experimental tool or theoretical ideas or just the ability to abstract what you need to think about. And that's how I think about that phrase. And that's how I think about often the role of education and classes and teaching. It sometimes helps you be prepared for those conversations where you realize you can help make a contribution or you recognize a new question that people haven't asked. That makes me think back to what you said earlier, that different people would come to your office and maybe they would come from different fields, but the problems they were talking about are actually similar. Well, I think many of us have backgrounds in science and engineering that can be very useful. I can only speak of the lens that fluid mechanics gives you. I think all of us have a lens to look at certain problems Fluid mechanics gives a lens to all those out-of-equilibrium systems that have a flow or transport of something. So whether that's a physiological question, uh, a question of cooling by blowing air or liquid over surfaces, questions perhaps related to climate, that's a large-scale, questions related to small-scale diagnostic devices like a pregnancy test or a COVID test. So all of these, from my perspective, If the question you're asking is about a flow, a reaction that involves some kind of transport, to me, they look similar because the whole training in fluid mechanics or associated areas of physics and applied mathematics help you think about that interplay of flow, diffusion, reaction. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's what I mean by that. And I just always found it really interesting, partly because I like people to 
hear about all these other questions. And it didn't bother me so much that it was a biological problem like swimming bacteria or right. geophysical problems that happen on the Earth's interior. Of course, I'm not going to be as expert at many of the details, but when my colleagues would explain to me some of the physical questions they were asking, I just found it interesting. And I was, in a few cases, certainly not very many, but in a few cases, able to help them think through and maybe calculate some of yeah. the quantitative questions they had. It's everywhere. So you could write a book called Life is Flow. There's probably a book already like that. So earlier you said that interesting things happen at the boundaries between fields. Why is that? Why do you think that's where the interesting things happen? I'm coming from a perspective of someone trained in engineering and the physical sciences and somewhat classically trained in you know, subjects from thermodynamics and mechanics and other areas. And so I think in these more developed disciplines, the low-hanging fruit that's been studied decades ago, but there are new discoveries in other areas of science and engineering and you know biology, chemistry, where there are open questions and they relate to classical questions that have been studied in the past. They're not identical, but they may have some overlap. And I think it's at these boundaries that whether it's a biologist who's well-trained in molecular biology but doesn't think so much about mechanics or someone in mechanics who knows very little about modern ideas in molecular biology, you know, there's some exciting things to happen. So one example might be biological condensates, uh, membraneless organelles, this observation. Maybe it goes back 20 or 30 years, but it became very evident 15 years ago by a colleague here at Princeton, Cliff Brangwin, who's a postdoc, a man named Tony Hyman in Germany, where they observed that inside the cell, you're used to these textbook pictures, that every important organelle is bound by a membrane. They each have their own function. They exchange materials. But it seemed that there were these liquid-like domains inside the cell that were phase-separating from the cytoplasm, and it looked like just a liquid, what's called liquid-liquid phase separation in physics or chemistry. And I think... After their paper appeared, many other researchers in different kinds of labs in molecular biology started to find these phase-separated materials and started to speculate what might their function be. And there I've been able to get involved in this with some collaborations because there there's this new observation. It's very apparently important in biology because it's found in now different systems. But the question is, what does it do? How does it do it? How does it rearrange? Those are questions in mechanics, fluid mechanics, whatever you want to call it, complex fluids, physics. And it brings up many ideas in classical physical chemistry. And so mm -hmm. getting those two communities to talk to each other, I think has been very exciting. And I've been able to be involved in some of these discussions. And there are quite a number of research papers out now right at this boundary. And I think that's very exciting because the Biologists, I think, are recognizing the information that can come from the physical or mechanical thinking, and the physics and mechanical people are realizing there are these new questions to think about that really have yeah. meaning, and they haven't been addressed before. Yes, I think it's really interesting what you said, that within the individual fields, a lot of the interesting questions, or you call it the low-hanging fruits, have already been addressed Whereas at the interfaces, there's a lot of things that have not been addressed that require the fields to merge at these points. And one way that Itai and I would look at that is that really the structure of science into fields 
is to a large extent arbitrary, right? You have these different nodes of knowledge that are connected by edges, and this whole network is now clustered in some way, and we call this physics, and we call this fluid dynamics, and that's biology. Yeah, and it may be obsolete, but yeah. Yeah, and really, it's for historical reasons that the questions within each cluster have been addressed, but sort of the boundaries have not. If we had a different type of clustering, it would be different questions that would have been asked, I guess. Yeah, it's true, because if uh, you think about each field is really originated from one idea, one work, and it kind of mushroomed up to be bigger and bigger. But to do new work, you have to kind of start a new field, make a new connection. Howard, I want to ask you another question. As you're working, and perhaps at the interface, how is it, would you say, that you come up with creative ideas? Do you have a conscious method that you feel that you can control? I think I could say what, now I have to be careful because I think lots of good things that you end up doing in research, at least in my experience, were accidents that happened in the lab that you didn't anticipate and you realize, oh, that looks pretty interesting. Right, but, but you were prepared for it, as Pasteur would say. Yeah, exactly. But I think for me, I feel like I'm best able to think about and articulate new ideas when I have a sort of specific problem in mind because I'm talking to someone about a question. We're at a blackboard or whiteboard. And often I think I do best when you start with a specific question and you sort of step back a little, zoom out a little to just be sure you're thinking about the holistic thing around you and then start to realize, okay, there's a sub-problem that seems interesting, and then you start to drill down a little. But I find it's mostly in conversations with people. It's often standing at a blackboard. It's kind of scribbling, trying to think about, you know, how do you think about this new question? What might be important? For me, I shouldn't say this in public, but I guess I'm about to. <laughs> it's very hard for me to write research grants over the years because what I found is – I'm just not creative in saying what I want to do or what I'm going to do. I'm much better, in my case at least, working on something and creating from that than trying to claim I know the most interesting things I'm going to work on in the next three or four years. So You mean you can't predict how your project is going to unfold five years in advance? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, nobody can do that. When students or colleagues come and we stand at a, together and we're talking and then we start to make some sketches or we look at some data, I just feel like it's in that context that I'm more likely to evolve some ideas that might be interesting to pursue. But I'll also say what I said when I started this. Some of the things I think we did that were most interesting happened sort of accidentally. We were doing something and something happened that we didn't anticipate and that turned out to be robust and interesting, and certainly it wasn't any plan to it. Yeah, so that's the discovery, right? It's something that you didn't expect and that you couldn't have written in the ground. But, you know, from what you said, I think it just makes the point that being good at writing grants is not equivalent to being good at doing research, right? Because undoubtedly you're doing brilliant research. I don't want to generalize too much. I was just trying to say, for me, I just feel I understand the importance of all these things, but I just find that I feel if, if you use the word creative in describing what I do, I feel I'm just more creative in the problem-solving mode, working with people on it than trying to write what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. yeah. And when you say, Howard, that the most interesting things have 
followed from accidents. I think it's really interesting, right? Because it's not an accident out of nowhere. It's an accident that followed from doing a particular experiment. Yeah, I can give you several examples. Yeah, yeah. We, we want to know what is like a typical way that... Uh, okay, so at some point I got interested because of colleagues when I was still at Harvard in bacteria and biofilms. There was a big effort uh, led by Dave Wade, George Whitesides and others. And my group was tasked for looking at how flow affects some of these problems. And when I continued that when I got to Princeton, and one of the questions we were asking is, how does flow affect bacteria on surfaces? You know, bacteria are everywhere. You guys are in the life sciences, right? And mm -hmm. flow is everywhere. And there just weren't that many papers that looked at what flow does to bacteria. And you might think if you have bacteria on a surface and you have a flow over them, that, you know, there's some chance that they're going to be uh, swept away by the flow. Mm -hmm. And what my student Yi Shen discovered, she's now a professor in Australia, was that in some conditions, the bacteria seemed to be walking upstream into the direction the flow was coming from. Eventually, we discovered one other paper had suggested based on an experiment. So that was something we didn't anticipate at all. And I think it's very interesting. And we certainly didn't set out to do it. But once it happened, we were set up to try to unravel how is this coming about. So that would be mm -hmm. an example. It seems as though, just to be philosophical about it, you had set yourself up for seeing something in a particular way. How does flow interact with some of these common biological problems involving bacteria? Right. You had this general topic. Of course, in the yeah. grant, you couldn't have written, aim two, we will see that the <laughs> bacteria flow upwards. You couldn't have predicted that. But there it was. Well, everyone who had studied the problems would have written, hypothesis two, we will study the rate at which the bacteria leave the surface and go downstream. So what you now described was that you did an experiment, you made an observation, and you were prepared to make that observation. So, you know, that's one way of the creative process. But before you also said that most of your creativity happens in conversations with people. Yeah. Why is that? As part of problem solving, I think. Yes, but it's not problem solving by yourself. You could also be sitting there with a piece of paper and your pencil and trying to solve it that way. But Undergrad style. <laughs> well, um, or lone genius style. There's certainly times where we probably all do that, I guess. And there's certainly some people who are, you know, that's their modus operandi, and they're very successful at it. I guess for me, it's, you know, since I run a research group and the researchers, they're more in the lab or doing simulations or whatever, and they come and talk to me about things that they're learning and hearing. I guess it's that interplay of sharing many ideas and thinking about different things that can affect a problem that are good for me as I try to think about, well, what could be going on or what would be interesting? How does it relate to something I know in the past? I said at the beginning, I'm a little too conservative. I tend to come from this training where I read books and I got to think that everything was in books. But sometimes at least I have a sense for the background of how certain things fit together. And you have to be willing at times to give that up when you start to see things that don't quite fit within that picture. You know, in one case, again, going back to this bacterial problem, we also had problems where we had flow over biofilms. You know, biofilms are sort of everywhere. And there was very little work on how flow affected biofilms. And so we were looking at that. And everyone associates biofilms with surfaces. And uh, I had two researchers, Sigal and QEA and uh, Roberto Rosconi, who were doing these experiments. And they started to find in all their experiments that whenever they grew a biofilm on the surface and had a very slow flow over it and looked at it under a microscope over a long time, they would start to see three-dimensional structures appear inside the flow, almost like strings floating in the middle of a channel. 
Hmm. Huh. And they came to talk to me about it. And I said, well, you know, if it's really this flow you're talking about, this laminar so-called low Reynolds number flow, there's no reason that you would ever have anything floating inside the flow if it starts on the surface. And they calmly looked at me and said, but it happens in every experiment we do. And <laughs> we started to realize that there was something generic about this and that this picture of a surface attached biofilm could be much richer when you had additional so-called stresses and the stresses here came from the flow. But that again was something that initially I couldn't see how it could possibly happen, but I was too constrained by what I knew from books. And it was only in talking to my colleagues that we began to understand the interplay of different effects that were producing these new three-dimensional structures. I think that's really interesting what you say, because you really had to do this mind trick of suspending everything that you had read. And you have to now say, well, perhaps it's wrong. Perhaps it's an exception. Yeah, in this case, it wasn't wrong. It's just that the problem had other features that I hadn't anticipated and never thought about. And the field hadn't thought about either. But it still takes, I think, a lot of mental effort and perhaps also just straight up confidence to go against in some way what you've read. Yeah, I think confidence is a really interesting word because I actually think that research does take a certain amount of confidence. And this goes back to creativity. And I think also what I said about me being conservatives is when I was a young professor, I remember almost, I'm not sure being scared was the right word, but being too uncomfortable if the problem I was thinking about was outside of things I knew about because I wasn't sure how to go about it, how to approach it, how to think about it. Right. And I remember one of my colleagues encouraging me that that was not so healthy. But I think confidence is important because the reality is we want to uh, tackle new problems and we want to have the confidence that we have the ability to understand them, to unravel them, you know, good detective work, to qualify them, to quantify them. And that, I think, takes a certain amount of confidence that we should cherish. We should cherish the unknown, and we shouldn't worry so much that we're not going to be able to do it. We're going to do our best. We're going to use the tools at our disposal. We're going to talk to our colleagues, and we should relish this detective work that's in front of us to unravel that which is not understood. Yeah, so maybe it's a confidence that you're talking about, a confidence about your ability to do research, and not so much a confidence about the validity of your assumptions or hypotheses. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're all human, so we're going to make mistakes, but you don't want to feel handicapped. You want to sort of relish this. I think many young people, I think this is maybe important to share, that there's this great detective story out there in front of you in research. And sometimes it's identifying what's the question involved in all these observations you're making and trying to understand. And, and other times it's, how do I think about it? How do I unravel pathway or kinetics or quantify something or compare an experiment in a model? But it's full of these open ends and there are many pathways to go about it. And you just don't want to tie yourself down to a small perturbation on a well-known problem because it's more clear to you what to do. It's really interesting that you say detective work. It reminds me of, I think he's a Princeton alumni, John Tukey. Yeah. He made the analogy that in science, you have the detective and the judge. The detective is exploring. The judge is now testing. And I think so often the latest trend point to 
hypothesis testing as the acceptable way to do science. You know, you have the hypothesis ahead of time, and now you seek data to test it. And the picture you're describing resonates much more with me of thinking of yourself as a detective. There's a, a great detective story right in front of you. Yeah, well, I'm not sure I created this. I think I've borrowed and learned from lots of friends. You know, I have a friend, Michael Brenner, who's at Harvard, and often I would see him get really excited in seminars when he realized, you know, there was a puzzle being Mm. presented and he would generally see it before I did. But, you know, it was people like that. But that's why a good audience is important, right? You want to have an engagement with your audience because that's also another way that ideas get exchanged. It's a lot about communication, right? Either with individual people, with maybe the people that work in your lab. But like you're saying, it's also questions that you might get after a scientific talk. So, you know, when you were talking about what are the different types of problems that you and the people in your group work on, you said one of them, an important one, is to figure out what is actually the question that we should be looking at. Hmm. So what role does that play in your creative process or in your science to figure out new questions? I'm not sure I'm understanding exactly the question. <laughs> Yeah, what well, is the question, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> well, the question is, you know, the way Itai and I like to phrase that is that the public often assumes that what scientists do is to answer questions. But really what scientists are predominantly occupied with is finding new questions. At least that's the way we see it. And I was just wondering if you also see it that way and if finding new questions rather than answering existing questions is an important part in your research. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, many of us who like research like trying to answer questions. In many ways, good research is not just answering a question, but it's opening the door to ask yet more questions. Mm -hmm. But, of course, finding the questions is probably the hardest, you know, finding the good questions, finding the impactful questions, finding the questions that maybe transform is too hard, but help move fields forward. That's probably really hard. I mean, if yeah. there was a recipe for that, I mean, you, you could make a lot of money, I suppose. But, <laughs> you know, I'll give an example that I think is relevant. When COVID hit in February, March 2020, you know, there was sort of a big mystery what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. How was it spreading? You know, this is 100 years after the 1918 pandemic. And in some ways, all of us, even the most modern countries, the most modern public health systems were caught off guard with what was happening. And uh, I was being visited by Manuk Abkarian, a friend and great experimentalist from Montpellier, France. He had arrived in Princeton March 1st to study, work with my group on blood flow. And roughly a week later, or two weeks later, New Jersey closed and the university shut down and he was an experimentalist at home with his family. And we started to talk every day about what we were reading. And we were reading, you know, basically just stories in the press about the number of cases increasing, people getting sick at lunch. We read about a German story of people getting sick in a conference room. And we started to ask the question, how much speech, how much ordinary conversations might play a role in spreading an airborne virus? Hmm. And then we ended up creating a small research program around that. And although there's been a lot of work done on sort of general atmospheric or aerosol science, there was very little known about when you're speaking to your friend, how much you're changing your environment, 
and how much they're breathing in of what you breathe out. And that came through a series of conversations, reading the paper, through thinking about modern questions. And that can happen in many fields, whether it's medicine or industry or whatever. They're sources of questions. And I think that is sort of also another way you generate ideas, just by paying attention to things happening in areas around you. But also, you can only identify questions best in areas you have some expertise in, so you understand how you might pose a question. So I guess, you know, your expertise in fluid mechanics, that's such a fundamental tool. There's just so many applications of that to simple systems, to complex systems everywhere. Everything that, flows. Yeah, yeah. It's really a vast space of possible applications. Yeah, but, you know, it has a certain feature to it, right? That if you want to understand it, there's some mathematics behind it that's useful. You have to appreciate some physics. It's all built on Newton's laws. And most fields give you almost no exposure to it unless you're in engineering. And so not that you have to take a whole course in it, but I do sometimes wonder, you know, there's a finite time in the university system. Where should one try to... Because it's not just fluid mechanics, it's other areas, whether it's physical chemistry or all kinds of fields. But where are there places where injecting a little might produce a big effect by helping people be aware of at least qualitative ideas, quantitative ideas? But if you take a standard class, there's a lot of math, I think. And, you know, there's this great quote from the great Jay Willard Gibbs about math as a language. But in a way, it does then act as a barrier if you don't speak the language. And when you're generating new ideas, I think a really basic problem is choosing which ones to follow up because each idea will take probably years of work. So do you have a sense for how to choose the ideas that you want to work on? Which ones are promising? Which ones are less promising? Is there like a kind of Howard question that you gravitate towards? Well, my students and collaborators would probably tell you truthfully that most of the ideas are theirs. Um, <laughs> uh, but you have to give them advice. So I do have these conversations a lot recently. You know, I'm talking to someone or a member of my group, and we're trying to figure out what to do next. And there's some suggestions. I generally pick the simplest one to do that sounds to me like it might answer a question rather than the most complicated one. Yeah. What is it about the simplest ones? Why do we like them so much? Well, because, you know, the field I work in is sometimes called complex fluids. Complex because there are things in it, whether they're cell, bacteria. So you like complex things. <laughs> yeah, except what you often find in complicated systems that have many inputs is that only a few of them are important for answering some question. And the issue is, what are those few? And then how do they cause that regulation? Biology is probably full of examples like this, I would think. Hmm. And maybe it's not true that every complex problem has only a few controls, but I think it's often true that a couple ideas often play a big role in dominating many systems, and figuring that out is one of the beauties of bringing simplicity to what otherwise are complex systems. Now, yeah. maybe machine learning and other things are changing the way we think, but it's certainly been in the past I don't know whether you'd call it reductionism or not, of, of finding those controls in a complicated system that has provided a lot of insight to people. Yeah, in a way, maybe that's what we're all striving for, to simplify the universe in a way through science. Yeah. So, Howard, you were saying that, you know, I don't think it's 100% true, but you were saying that 
all the ideas actually come from your students and the people you work with. But I'm sure that you have a huge influence also on their creativity, on their creative process. So is there a specific way in which you mentor your students for being creative? I don't typically tell my students the three projects and four or six papers they have to write to get their PhD. I certainly don't tell them that their first months in graduate school. I normally mm -hmm. know the kinds of things I'm interested in, some of the things I have funding for, some of the things I've heard about. I talk to them about their interests and I try to find a problem to start with that sort of sits at this boundary to get them going. And then I'm perfectly happy to help them evolve projects as they go forward. And in a couple of cases, they found just by working in the lab and talking to a friend, a completely different subject that they then want to work on. And for me, that's fine. Okay. But I'm more doing it through conversations and nudging and trying to give feedback as they explore a problem, trying to suggest directions they might go. I'm sure I'm not the only advisor that makes suggestions that don't work out. So, um, <laughs> But I think it's more trying to help them down a path. And I don't pretend that I know what that whole trajectory will look like. I think I'm comfortable with that. And mm -hmm. I would like to work with students who are comfortable with that. Of course, that's not every case. There are, I believe, lots of groups where, you know, you're project one is this and project two is that and project three is that and we're going to have four papers and you write n equal four papers for your thesis that's probably <laughs> a fine approach i've never been able to do that and so i've tried to adopt this more flexible approach of encouraging my students to work on a project and then we normally find something that also looks interesting and we take a turn you know 30 degrees to the right and then 20 degrees to the left and every once in a while 180 degrees if they stumble on something else interesting Do you also find that you need to be a bit of a psychologist in the sense that you need to get a feel for the person's strengths? Yeah, again, you have to ask the students, but I do try to treat each student as an individual and try to find both problems and interactions that work for them. And for me, that's, I think, been a useful approach. I think you'd have to ask them, do they find it to be a useful approach? But I do find that, you know, sometimes I have meetings just with one student, sometimes students are working together and then we meet as a group. Often I engage postdocs in the conversations with the graduate students because they're great mentors. They're around the lab all the time. I encourage people to talk a lot and work together. They don't always, but I think the more community there is in the group, the happier the environment, the more productive the people are, the more creative they are. When there's somehow friction for whatever reason, I think that affects not just one person. I think it affects everyone. Yeah, that's the worst. The happier a community is, and I could tell you offline about some cases where I observe things like this, that it really made the whole environment prosper. I mean, a happy group is generally a creative group. The young people are so talented, and they have many talents that you don't even know about that influence their work. So it's something I think that's really important. The environment, not just in the lab, but in nearby labs and sharing equipment and going to common seminars I think that's all really important in building an environment that is fruitful for work, for research, for creativity. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, this is what we can observe in our own labs, but also other people confirm that if the people in a lab, if it's a good community and if the people are happy and if they enjoy working, then 
they're going to be just doing much better science. But zooming back in to your own creative process, rather than you as part of the environment, do you have any techniques that you find helpful for your creative process? Well, I don't know if this counts as creativity, but I know when I learn and think, I like to draw connections between topics. So at least in my field, there are a number of cases where I've sort of recognized commonalities between somewhat different problems. By somewhat different problems, I mean the groups that work on them are somewhat isolated. And I think in a couple of cases, I was able to understand that they were actually related topics. So I could start to paint maybe more in a class or for a review, a picture tying them together. Of course, once you do that, then you start to realize that there's something more to be done, something more to be understood. Other problems that might connect to these two problems. So in one case, I sort of tied five problems together. I don't know whether people find that creative, but for me, it made it then much easier to understand certain topics because I could see how things were related. They weren't different questions. They were sort of the same question. You just had to sort of tilt your head a little. I think about that partly as creativity. And I will also say one other thing, you know, I've also found teaching helpful because in a couple cases in thinking about homework and thinking about a style of question to ask, I, you know, made the question. And then over time, I started to realize that the answer to the question or a style of the question wasn't in the literature. It was a question people hadn't asked so carefully. And so in sometimes in my teaching, I've not only has it helped me learn how to think, which I think is very valuable, but it started to make me realize there were other questions in the field that were interesting to ask and hadn't been asked. Now, other people might not find them interesting, but I found them interesting and they led to small research projects. We should start to wrap up and unless there's something you wanted to say that we didn't ask you about. No, I think it sort of covered the way I've evolved to work with people and think about things. And as I said, when I started out, I'm sure I wasn't at all creative. And it really was observing people and friends and talking to them and seeing science a little bit more widely and then finding a place where I felt comfortable fitting in that made me realize how fun and interesting it is and how many questions there are to ask. And then seeing science evolve, it's amazing how rapidly some fields now are evolving. There are still yeah. lots of questions and just trying yeah. to stay confident about problem solving in a world that, uh, you know, they're challenging research questions. You know, actually, I think I made a similar experience in the sense that when I started out in doing research after my PhD, when I switched to biology, for a long time, I felt I needed to rely on collaborators, on biologists to, you know, tell me what are the questions that I should be working on. And it took me a long time to discover my own creativity and, and finding my own questions. And that's one of the motivations for doing this podcast and for writing the editorials that Itai and I are writing. Yeah, thank you for those editorials, by the way. You know, a colleague at Princeton forwarded them to me, and so they've really been nice for me to read and study. That's great. That's great that you like them. Well, it's not often that people talk about creativity, and I think it's important to help young people realize that there are many pathways into this, and there, there's this exciting world out there. It's not necessarily the world of the textbook. Yes, so. yes, absolutely. So, Howard, thank you so much for this discussion. It was really interesting. Yeah. Thank well, you. thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk with you. 
Absolutely. It's really thought-provoking. It was our pleasure. 